0: If you've got your Bibles with you today, go ahead and turn to uh, Daniel chapter 4, as we're going through the book of Daniel here. We've been exploring uh, the book of Daniel, um, looking at uh, the stories and how they are um, stories of resident aliens. And As I was thinking about Daniel chapter 4, a different verse came to my mind um, from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Uh, You've probably heard this before. I mean, this is a verse that we're really familiar with. Uh, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. This this verse just kept on on coming, coming to my mind again and again as I was reading through the story of Daniel. Because you see, I I think that we are all plagued by the same things. I I don't think that there's, I I know there's a lot of difference in our lives, that your history is different than mine, your skin color might be different than mine, your background might be different than mine, your gender, um, how much money you've got in the bank. We have all kinds of differences between us, but I think at the core, we are all very, very much the same. We experience the same kind of thing. We have these great big powerful things that stand over our lives. These things that seem to move and to shape and to 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 make the world after its own image. And with this I think of you know presidents and supreme courts and economies and CEOs and militaries and cultural icons who we see in TV and commercial and their music and their movies are, are influencing the way especially our young people see and understand not only themselves but the world and what is right and what is wrong. We have these these big movers and shakers and we also have <coughs> in our lives smaller things that still seem to to. To move us in ways we have families, and we have spouses, and we have children, and we have jobs, and we have bosses, and we have bank mortgages, and we have all of these things that we're dealing with. And if all of these places have an impact in our lives, and each time it impacts in our lives, it asks something of us. It demands something of us. It says, follow me. Believe me trust me, love me, be committed to me. All of these things are sort of pulling at us and drawing at us. And in this, I guess I sort of see, um, this this verse, uh, Jesus is wrapping up part of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about money and worry. That's nothing you've ever dealt with, right? I mean, this is not familiar to you at all, I'm sure, but... Money and worry. And Jesus wrapping all of this stuff up, talking about money, talking about worry. And at the end he says this, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else sort of aligns itself, takes care of itself. I think of life very much as a cyclone of competing priorities and allegiances, all sort of looking to draw me into their maelstrom. And out of that cacophony, I hear Jesus' words. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." To me, that's a powerful word. It's a powerful word from Jesus to us because in the stormy cacophony, as I said, of of our lives, um, go here, do this, believe this, be like this, think this is right, think this is wrong. And all of that noise, we hear this voice that says, yoke yourself up with me and follow me. Christians, Christians, I know you feel like there's a lot that's going on in your life, and I want to take this moment. I think, I think this is why worship is so important. I, I think because it's the one point in our life during the week, hopefully there's more, but there's at least one point in our life during the week where everything else stops. And everything else gets left outside of those doors, and you hear the word from Jesus that you as Christians have but one job. I'm going to make your life simpler, not easier, right? Because Jesus doesn't make things easy, but simpler. You have but one job. Follow Jesus. Not not the Jesus of the left, which is, hey, love everybody, everything's okay, don't worry about it, it's all about love, and not the right, which is, you know, screaming out uh, about judgment and hellfire and brimstone, but the Jesus of the scriptures, the real Jesus, the Jesus of love, the Jesus of thunder, the Jesus of forgiveness, and the Jesus of judgment, the Jesus who says, listen, if you want God, you come to me, and I give you rest. Seek ye first the kingdom of god in all of the noise and chaos of our lives seek ye first the kingdom of god and i've got to imagine daniel understood this in a way that i think christians who have heard jesus say it somehow forget and one of the things about seeking first the kingdom of god is that it always 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 puts you in opposition with the rest of the world because all of that maelstrom, all of, those, all of those other voices, all of those other competing allegiances and priorities and concerns and worries and fears, all of those other things are trying to draw you back to them. And when you say, no, I'm busy seeking first the kingdom of God, they build furnaces, right? They put up crosses. So you certainly will find yourself as a resident alien in conflict with the world, You will find yourself not belonging in Babylon anymore. And we have to reckon with that recognize its glory and its grandeur and its peace. And so I want to kind of track with the story because we have seen Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, exiles of God's kingdom's resident aliens in Babylon. We have seen them confronting the big powers of their lives, the big movers and shakers in the world. And what I love about Daniel, and I think somehow we miss when we read it because we're boring people when we read the Bible. We really are. We try to make it so like flat and uninteresting, and these stories are hilarious. You have Babel, you have you have King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, good old Nebi. I mean, he is king of the world, literally king of the world. Everyone has to bow to this guy. Everyone pays taxes to this guy. He has got the biggest castle. His his palace is considered one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world. And what does the story begin with? He has a dream, a dream of a great image. And he recognizes the face on that image, and he says, that looks a heck of a lot like me. And then he sees this great stone come flying out of nowhere, and knock it over, and roll over, and crush it, and becomes dust, and it flits away into the air. And he wakes up from this dream, and he says, I don't think that was a good dream. Not good to be knocked over and crushed by a rock, just not good. And so what does he do? He calls all of his wise men together and he says, hey, listen, you need to tell me my dream last night. And they say, you're insane. What are you talking about? Like, and he says, listen, you tell me your, my dream last night and you give me the interpretation or I'm going to rip your arms off and beat you to death with them. That's ridiculous. Like, that's, that's, that's nonsense. And if we were good Jews hearing the story, we would be like, yeah, like, do that. Because we hate all you Babylonians. You knocked down our homes. You burned down our our temple. You you took us into captivity. These are our enemies, and they're going at one another. They're going to start killing one another. And we're like, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, go ahead. Start tearing arms off. Yes. It doesn't seem to be the way God works, though, is it? Because Daniel shows up on the scene, and Daniel is able to fix the problem. Daniel is able to give the king a word, and he explains it all to him. And Nebuchadnezzar is awed, and he says, Wow, you must—you really do have the spirit of the gods in you. You really are someone different. So the next day, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, and he says, You know, maybe I should build this thing. Which is ridiculous, because you just watched it get knocked over. Like, that's, that's nonsense. Why would you do this? And he says, you know, what? instead of making it like something strong, like bronze or uh, iron or something like that, I'll make it all of gold, which is, of course, as you know, is the strongest of the metals, right? So if you're going to build a 90-foot uh, statue of yourself, making it out of a soft metal is a great idea. Good job. Good thinking. And you know, the other thing you ought to do when you build a giant statue of yourself is you should make the base much, 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 much smaller than the rest of everything else, right? This is, this is the best architectural um, minds of Babylon at work. So nine feet wide and 90 feet tall, as Paul preached last week, and you say, that's nonsense. But imagine you're in a Babylonian there, and you are standing up at a 90-foot image of your king, all in gold, and you would say... Man, his power is insurmountable. No one could compare to this. No one could touch this. This is eternal. This thing's not going anywhere. But if you're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you notice the base. You notice that all of humanity's pretensions at power and control and eternality are but dust in the wind. And you say, I don't bow before your idols. I don't bow before anything that you set up. I have but one king and one kingdom. And the kings rage, don't they? Doesn't matter what king you're talking about, they rage. And they say, Then you go into the furnace. And the Daniel, or Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah go into the furnace. And they come out of the furnace again, smelling not even a bit like smoke. And they show all of this power for what it is nothing. You turn on the TV, you open the newspaper, you open up your Facebook feed, you listen to your kids talk, you turn on the radio, you see everything and that cacophony of voices and that maelstrom that is all around us that is screaming at us to believe, to become, to think, to ally, to bow, and it feels like we have no control whatsoever it feels like everything is against us. It feels like everything is about to fall apart and you're going to be ripped in 14,000 different directions. But if you look at the base of all of it, you would see that it's nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that God has control of all of it. And Nebuchadnezzar forgets this. He has a dream again. It seems to happen to him a lot. In verse, uh, chapter 4 of Daniel, he has this dream, and in verse 10 it says that he dreams of a, of a tree that's sort of in the midst of the earth. It's the center of everything, and its height is... Uh, is, Im- is I- immense. It- it's unimaginably large. It stands above everything else. And he says in verse 11, that the tree grew and it became strong and it reached uh, to the tops to the very heavens themselves. And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. The whole earth is looking up at this tree. Its leaves are beautiful. Its fruit is abundant. And in it is food for all. The beasts of the field find shade in it. The birds make their homes in it. All of fle- all flesh, the whole world, is dependent upon This tree. It is the greatest tree. But then a watcher comes, it says in verse 13. Now watchers uh, only appear here in Daniel, but we know from other Jewish uh, uh, literary sources that a watcher was kind of like an archangel. Archangel. And uh, so, a sort of a high messenger from God, and the messenger would come and it would intercede with people at certain times. Here, this messenger comes and intercedes for Nebuchadnezzar and says, "This chop down that tree, lop off its branches, strip it of its leaves, scatter its fruit." Let the beasts flee from under. Let the birds get from its branches, but leave a stump behind and bind it with an uh, iron and bronze, like shield it up so that it can't even have any connection there, and let it be amid the tender grass of the field, and then let him be wet with dew. Let his portion be with the beast. Let his mind be changed from a man's to a beast's mind. Let seven periods, which is probably months, but could possibly be seasons, so like about a year and a half, um... So let seven periods of time pass over him. And Nebi wakes up again, freaked out, calls all of his visors together. And again, all of the wise men of Babylon have what to say? Nothing. They can't say anything, but Daniel can. And his answer is this. His answer is, you are that tree. You, the great and powerful, you who have everything figured out, you who the whole world is going after, you, the greatest power, the greatest nation, the greatest whatever in the world, you are but a tree. And Daniel gives him then a piece of very important advice. You might want to highlight that in your Bible. I think generally it's good advice, but he delivers it directly um, To Nebuchadnezzar, in verse twenty-six, he says, "It's commanded then to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom, that is Babylon, right, shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." So, what's the message that God is trying to get across to him? It's this: that heaven rules. And here, I want to recall again. I know I've talked about this before, but I'm going to hammer it home until um, until somebody screams at me and tells me to stop. Um, Heaven is just a way of saying God without saying God. Kingdom of heaven as we have in Matthew, kingdom of God in Mark and Luke, right? Because Matthew is written to a Jewish audience and they're afraid of breaking the third commandment. They don't want to take God's name in vain. And so most of the time when you have something like a capital heaven, it's just meant to say God without saying God because they're afraid of offending God. And so here it is simply trying to say that God rules, right? God rules. Until you understand that God rules. And when you do, you get your kingdom back. And so Daniel gives him this in verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the impressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity, that maybe things won't go sideways on you So here's this man of wealth and power, cultural influence, and God says, I will demonstrate how little your powers are. Oh, Christian, here today, our eyes are drawn to tall trees, aren't they? We're drawn to tall trees because we are little saplings and we are missing the attention and the grandeur and the ease of life of those great trees and we look at them and we say, wow, wouldn't it be great to have or to be or to experience thus. And so then we seek in our lives to emulate these things. What what do I have to do to achieve it? We look to copy it. We look to, to become like it. We look to compromise, even do whatever it takes to get there. And yet when God looks down and sees all of our kingdoms, whether they're a small little fiefdom in the church or in your home, whether it's a great kingdom like America, China, Russia, Babylon itself, what God sees with all of it is it's just trees. Just trees. And he can lop them down at will. And he invites you. He invites me, he invites all of us to see this truth because once you see this truth, your life can be transformed by it. Because no longer is that sea of voices, that sea of competing priorities going to draw you into their nonsense, but rather your life becomes like Daniel, firm, fixed, rooted, fearless before the noise of the world. Because I look at Daniel in the story It generally is a bad idea to go to the king and say, hey, this dream means you're going to lose everything. Not a great idea. And it's even worse an idea to say, hey, listen, you need to stop being a sinner. People don't like that now, and they can't chop people's heads off, generally speaking, right? But but Nebuchadnezzar has power to do all of this, and he just stands before Nebuchadnezzar, and he just tells him the truth. He says, hey, listen, you need to stop doing this. Look at that bravery. Look at that, that courage. Look at that fearlessness. I love that. What are Nebuchadnezzar's sins? Pride, arrogance, and a fixation on his own kingdom. He is fixated on his own glory and on his own kingdom. And he stands around at one point a year later, and that's what's interesting about this. A year later, all of this happens. He, he's standing there, and he looks around, and he says, Man, I'm awesome. I, look at how awesome I am. Look at how great this city is. Look at how great this palace is. Look how great I look in these fancy robes. Look at this beard. Because he, he obviously had an awesome beard. Look at all of this stuff that I have. Look at how great I am. And God whispers from heaven and says, You're just a tree. And immediately from that point on, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast. It says in the scriptures that he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails became like the bird's claws. And that's weird, isn't it? And that's funny, right? I mean, that's kind of funny. And it's really, really weird again. And then it's kind of funny again. But then it's weird again. It's, it's, it's mocking the power. It's mocking the greatness. It's making fun of all that, that we think is so insurmountably powerful in our lives and in our world. The things that are untouchable. Here is, the, here is what... Here's what great power looks like to God. Here's what pride looks like to God. Here's what your fiefdom, your control, your power, your mental abilities, your good looks, your money, all of this looks like this to God. It means nothing to him. So stop pursuing it, right? Stop pursuing it. And that's what's so amazing to me about this story is that Daniel delivers the prophecy— And then a year later, Nebuchadnezzar forgets the prophecy, doesn't he? I mean, when God acts in our lives in a moment and we feel a conviction, maybe in a song or in a sermon or maybe just a moment uh, of you being alone in prayer with God and you feel this deep conviction, you feel this moment of, man, I need to get my life right or I need to stop doing this or I need to put my whole trust in God and seek first his kingdom, I, I need this. And then a, a week goes by and a month goes by and a year goes by and all of that intensity, all of that maybe guilt that you felt, all of that relief in the forgiveness and the grace of God, all of that has sort of gone away. And you forgot the message you received. And in that moment is the greatest danger of your life. In that moment, you become Nebuchadnezzar, right? And you forget. And because of that, he is driven out. He becomes a wild beast. So what happens when we get fixated on our own priorities, on our own kingdoms, on our national worries, on our achievement, on our wealth or our status, on our kids? What's the antidote For all of this, where where can we move to the eye of the storm where there is peace and there is quiet, where we become resident aliens and we leave behind everything else? Not leaving the mess, not leaving the maelstrom, but, but finding in its center, in the center of that hurricane, in the center of it, finding peace, because it's there that we hear this message from Jesus, seek first my kingdom. Seek first my kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar comes to that moment. After seven periods, just as the prophecy was foretold, he says at the end of verse 34, he says, um, in realizing who God is after this moment of madness, he says, For his, that is God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth "...are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none, none can stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done?" This is the awesome and almighty power of God, and I feel like I fear, I fear, that we as a church have forgotten this. Do you notice these lines? I mean, these, these really struck me here. He does what he wants... In heavenly places, amongst the angelic beings, amongst whatever it looks like to be where God is, whatever that that stuff looks like, when he's there, he does what he wants. And And to the inhabitants of the earth, none can stop him, none can stay his hand, none can stand against him, and none can say, why have you done this? God's sovereignty and power over all creation is total and complete, We should stand in awe of this God who slays kings and lays mountains to rest and brings valleys up from the bottom of the sea, who moves this place to that place, who knocks down kingdoms, who raises up the smallest of us to be the judge of angels, the God who does what he wants. I fear like... I fear that... um, I fear that our God is too small. Nebuchadnezzar sees this. He finally has this moment of clarity in recognizing that everything he has is passing away. I discovered this um, at one point in my life. It occurred to me that after I die, no one will remember my name. I will be forgotten completely and utterly within not that many years after my death. And I can appreciate the old Greek stories of gods and heroes who are obsessed with mortality and memory. And as I look across the people and great names of, uh, of our culture, of our day, this desire to be remembered, this desire to be the front person, this desire to be in charge. I, I understand it. This question of how do I make my name last. In fact, I feel the obsession even with churches because I cannot count how many sermons I have heard about leaving a legacy. We heard this? Leaving a legacy. That your name would be remembered, and we stamp names on places throughout our church building, right? So-and-so's granddaddy gave something to this person, and we don't remember anything about them, but God forbid we move that thing You can be mad at me about that later. Right now, pay attention. We are so obsessed with that, and yet Daniel doesn't seem to, does he? He seems to adroitly move in and out of these stories. He doesn't seem to be fearful of the present. He doesn't seem to be lingering upon the past. He seems to be in the moment, and in the moment, he seems to be fearless, He seems to be focused. He seems to be fixated upon God's kingdom and delivering to Nebuchadnezzar, to whoever needs to hear it, the message that God has for them. And I see that kind of faith throughout the scriptures and I long for that faith. When I hear Paul say, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of this, not having my name remembered, not even living forever, not not being Wealthy or powerful or rich or living an easy life. The surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is after. He says, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. Everything else can go away. My name can become dust. My body can become dust. But I want to know Jesus. And I wonder in our obsessed age of of physical beauty and... Remembering our name and accumulating possessions and being the top of the ladder. I wonder if in our day, we as Christians might be the only voice in the world who can say, I have a simple desire. I want to know God. Can you say that this morning? Can we say that our one thing is to know Jesus? It occurred to me this week, or not this week, a few weeks ago, I've been wrestling with the implications of it. As I was taking account of my sins, which are many, and my struggles, and it occurred to me that I could submit all of my life to the question, all of the different aspects or pleasures or instances or experiences of my life to one question, it is this, if I never experience X, fill in the blank, whatever it is, if I never experience this again, will I still be full of joy? If I never experience or do this or have this again, will I still have joy? Because I think that question gets at the the deeper question of am I seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? Is that the first and most important thing in my life? Because again, it all comes back to that. Seeking first God's kingdom And seeking first his righteousness. Notice that's Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. I stand in awe of Daniel because I see these two characters Contrasted with one another. We see good old Nebi having all of the power and all of the wealth and and all of the things of the world, and yet then we see that contrasted with God Himself, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar and all that power is but a pale, a pale imitation. Fakeness before the reality of God. We have people in power now in the world who think that they are unassailable in their penthouses. And with their personal security. Who think that the word of God which says be sure your sins will find you out does not apply to them. And they are fools. Because it applies to all of us. And when we turn on the TV and we see the great men and women of our day. We ought not look at them and admire them. We ought not look at them and say I wish to be like this. Because where in the scriptures where in the scriptures does it encourage us to look at the great, the powerful, the beautiful, and the wealthy and say we ought to be like that? No, it says look upon a crucified Savior and be like that. And I think that's the greatest sin of the American church is that we look to the cross for salvation, but we do not look to the cross for emulation. And Jesus says this, you take up your cross and follow me. You can't follow if you don't have the cross. And we forget this. This. And in this, we become like the world. And the noise of the storm draws us in. And all the time, it's so dangerous because all the time, while we're standing there, we still are thinking that we're good, solid Christians. But we're not. We've wandered from the truth. To follow Jesus is to bear the cross. And that's this story. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And I noticed the end of that. What's the end of that say? You, you got it there. You can say it. It's okay. Everything else. Everything else is added to you. Now that doesn't mean you're going to. And please don't let the, the heretics who are on the radio and on the television say that means that you're going to get the best job, the best car, the perfect uh, uh, a skinny wife and obedient children or skinny husband. Depending. It doesn't mean you're going to get all your wants. Paul says if we have food and shelter, we will be content with these because my concern is to find Jesus. And that's what I want. And this says that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then that deepest desire that we have, that deep desire to know and to be known by other people, by brothers and sisters in Christ and by God himself, that deep longing will be filled and met with living water, water that doesn't get old, water that doesn't spoil, things that don't fade, but something that is eternal, something that is real, something that no one on earth can take from you. Do you hunger for that today? Do you hunger for that today? As we have this image of a great tree, I just had, like, um, as I was reading this this week, I just had movie stars and presidents and just people just rolling through my mind. These great trees. These great trees cut down, cast away. And it drew my mind to Psalm chapter, the first Psalm which is an important message to the church today as we have such access to great trees more than ever before. And the psalmist says this to the believers. He says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. I love that. Come fall, come winter, right? Even in winter, the oak tree that is rooted in Jesus Christ, that is rooted upon the scripture, that has sought first the kingdom of God, that tree, its leaves aren't gone. Snow's piling up all around it. But the leaves are still green. The one that is planted in him. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he or she does, They prosper. But the wicked, they're not so. They're like chaff. They cut them down and they become just broken pieces of kindling. Therefore, the wicked don't stand, will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Isn't that good news? So my question, I guess, to you this morning as as we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, as we look at him and all of His power are brought to such a low estate. I would ask that you would all see yourselves in that low estate. And you would ask yourself this, am I seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Am I letting God plant me by the stream of living water? Is He my heart's desire? Is He my one pursuit if I can remove everything else in my life, if everything else goes to pot, if everything else goes to pieces, if everything else falls apart, even my very health itself, will I be able to stand and to say, with joy, I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Search your heart. Search your life this morning. As we come to a conclusion and sing our final song, if you need to, Come down front and make a decision of any kind to place membership, to seek, uh, to receive baptism, to just have somebody to pray with. Maybe you're going through that hard time. The storms are blowing and you need some help. We'll have an elder down front. I'll be down here. We would love to pray with you. Now is the day of decision. Now is the time to search your hearts. Don't let this moment go by. Please stand as we sing.